One of the things that I've talked about from time to time on Well Disguised is what makes a great record, and I've kind of hit on it on a couple episodes in sort of an elusive kind of way, but I know as a person, my thinking on that has evolved over the years. For example, as a kid and someone in my early to mid-teens, I kind of thought that a, a great record had to have at least five, six songs on it that you really were into, that you really liked. Better put, probably, that were actually really good. Then in the late 90s, and I don't know enough about when this actually started, I, it seems to me to coincide with that late 90s pop boom of Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, NSYNC, and that sort of thing, but that seems to me when the record business was at an all-time high. Now, footnote here, I could be completely wrong about that. If it isn't obvious, I am not a musical historian. I am not an expert. I don't even know why I have this podcast, to be honest with you. There's so many rock podcasts, so many music podcasts, and YouTube channels, and all sorts of things that are better than this one. But, in any event, it seems to me that was probably near the peak. You had those aforementioned pop bands, you had Limp Biscuit going nuts, you had Shania Twain, and Eminem, and whatever. Anyway... This period was also when Napster came along, perhaps in response to the point I'm trying to make here is that the reason why I say this is when the music industry was at its height, it's perhaps because demand was so high that the industry could get away with selling compact discs for 18 bucks a lot of times. Even 15 bucks was sort of a bargain, and if you were able to get one for 11.99, you felt pretty comfortable and good about that. But it wasn't uncommon at all to see music going for close to 20 bucks at that time. So if you're spending $19 on an album, you want it to be good. You don't want to get the new Marcy Playground and find out that sex and candy is all the dudes got. Or I still remember getting that Days of the New record and really liking Touch, Peel, and Stand, having heard it over and over on the radio and listening to the entirety of that record and and as the tracks ticked off and it got closer and closer to the end, getting that sinking feeling in my stomach that, yeah, I really like Touch, Pill and Stand as a song, but that's all they've got. I've just spent all this money for one song. I know a couple of the other tracks off that album were rock hits, but I felt like I was suckered as I was listening to that yellow slash orange record, as it's called. Anyway, at some point, though... I think I got a little more open-minded about it because, well, I bought a lot of records that just didn't have any good songs on it. I mean, I've bought a lot of CDs or ordered them from Columbia House or what have you, but based on reputation or the recommendation of friends or magazines or what have you, and I'd get it and I'd think, there's not a single track on here I'm really into. Maybe there's one or two that I think are okay, but... Not that I really ever care if I hear again. And friends, I'm sure that you can think of multiple albums like that that you've bought. Sometimes we buy them out of obligation, right? I remember buying that, and this obviously wasn't that long ago, but that Kiss record called Sonic Boom and listening to it and thinking, oh my God, this is the most turgid junk I have ever purchased in my life. I'm never going to listen to any of this ever again. So if an artist is able to make just one song that really perks your ears up and makes you grateful to listen to it, that's not half bad. That's the older John Pritchard talking at this point. 
And if they're able to get two or three of those, well, that's a great record. I mean, the signal-to-noise ratio or the, the hit rate or whatever you want to call it isn't really all that high. It's kind of like the old saying about baseball. You can be a success as a hitter three out of every ten times, and that's good enough to be a Hall of Famer. But what about those albums, those few albums, where every song is a hit? Or at least every song maybe could have been a hit. And perhaps maybe those songs were even written for that purpose. I want to dig into that a little bit on this episode of Well Disguised. According to my friends at Google, at the time of this recording, Taylor Swift is 31 years old, Miley Cyrus is 28, Justin Bieber is 27, Adele is 33, Megan Thee Stallion, or Megan The Stallion, (laughs) is 26, Cardi B is 28, Saweetie is 27. I'll be honest, I have no idea who Saweetie is, it's just when I looked up Megan Thee Stallion. Google recommended that I might also be interested in someone named Saweetie. But I sit here and read that she has a platinum certification for the debut single, Icy Girl. Icy Girl. I I guess I'm saying it right. Anyway, congratulations, Saweetie. 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 Anyway. The point is that back in the 1980s with the MTV explosion and everything else, that one of the conventional pieces of wisdom that you hear a lot is that the video age was bad for music because all of a sudden ugly people couldn't make music anymore. No one wanted to see fog hat and spandex and no one wanted to see Barry White with his shirt off. And that I suppose is true to a great extent. Of course there's always exceptions that prove the rule but generally the more visual medium of music video in the 1980s did lead to changes in the way people became stars. And while I certainly believe there is a lot of truth to that, and it's not even a particularly original or interesting thought, I I think I just called it half a minute ago, conventional wisdom. There was something a little different, though, in the 80s, and that's that the pop stars, the music stars of that time, were sometimes kind of old. Of course, when I say old, I mean in terms of the entertainment business, and certainly what we perceive as being the right age for superstardom today. A few examples. Tina Turner was already a worldwide success when Private Dancer came out in 1984. But she was 44 years old when that record came out, selling more than 5 million copies in the United States and more than 10 million around the world. She was one of the biggest pop stars in the world there for a year or two, after Private Dancer came out. And she was in her mid-40s. Lionel Richie had been famous, obviously, for the Commodores and had had a great deal of success, but when he took over the world in 1986 and was dancing on the ceiling, 
winning awards by the armful at award shows and selling millions of records, he was 37. Genesis is one of those perhaps not aesthetically pleasing bands to look at that survived the transition from the 70s to the 80s. To be fair, I think that had a lot to do with obviously a massive transformation of their sound from one of the leading, if not the leading progressive rock bands of all time into a very top 40 friendly sound. And also that they spent money well on their videos and had a lot of creative videos. But when Phil Collins was blowing up with No Jacket Required and Invisible Touch, he was in his mid-30s. Rock legend and blue-eyed soul master Steve Winwood obviously had a great, long, successful career, but when he was at his commercial zenith, he was 38 years old when Back in the High Life was released, and 40 when Roll With It came out. Now, I know you can say, wait a minute, all those people were famous long before their success in the 1980s. So there is some carryover effect to their success there, and I grant that that's a reasonable point. But then what do we make of Huey Lewis? Now, I would concede that it fudges the truth to say that Huey Lewis had not been a successful musician before the Huey Lewis and the News record Sports came out in the 1980s. Most famously, Huey Lewis is actually able to be heard on the Thin Lizzy live record, live maybe in quotes, I suppose. But you can hear Huey Lewis playing the mouth harp on Live and Dangerous by Thin Lizzy, one of the all-time great live rock records. But it wasn't until the third Huey Lewis in the News record, again called Sports, that Huey Lewis took over the world. That he was arguably one of, if not the biggest pop stars in the world, with all apologies to Michael Jackson, Prince, and Madonna. Huey Lewis was 33 years old when Sports came out. But that's not really the point. I, I know I've talked a lot about ages and one of the things that's been said about Huey Lewis, and this is not an original thought, that perhaps the reason why he is somewhat timeless is because he looks like he's 45. He looked like he was 45 when he was 33 and he kind of looks like he's 45 now. The reason why I wanted to talk about sports was because it's one of those records that sounds like every song could be a hit. And in fact, for sports, it nearly was. Sports was the third record for Huey Lewis in the news. And that was important because, well, that used to be important. And something that you can see if you go back in music history, especially in the 70s and going into the 80s, was that a lot of artists seemed to have their best work, their best music, around that third, fourth, maybe the fifth album. And that's because that's the way the music business used to be. A record company would so-called carry an artist for a few albums. Let them get their feet, let them tour a little bit, let them go into a studio, work with a producer, try to figure things out. And you would put up with that for an album or two. But by that third one, the record company started to want to get their investment back, which meant you need a hit. And I don't know if there is just something that it takes a few albums to really get your feet underneath you and to get your talent to its peak level, a little bit of practice, a little bit of know-how going into that, or if it's because a lot of times for a lot of artists, the record companies are putting pressure on you. We need something we can sell. We want to make money. And it's that pressure that helps motivate all those involved to really have a big record around that third or fourth mark. And this is for all sorts of people, even people you don't think of as traditional pop stars. 
Rush, for example, never exactly pumped out a lot of disco hits, but their record company was putting pressure on them before 2112 came out. They needed something that would sell, that would move units. Similarly, I was recently reading an article about the police. The first two police records sold well and produced seven international hits, but the record company was still concerned and putting a lot of pressure on them to have a big third album, Zenyatta Mandata, finally was the one that broke them through, at least in the United States. Now you might look back at those early police records and say, oh yeah, that's got songs that were big hits, Message in a Bottle or whatever. But at the time, the police were actually under pressure that you are not making records that are successful enough in America. So, one might understand then what was going through the mind of the members of Huey Lewis and the News before sports came out. The first two records hadn't really done anything commercially, Even in the 80s, the Huey Lewis and the News sound was kind of dated with the horns and everything and a kind of a throwback sensibilities to the the harmonies that they put forth. So what did they decide to do on this third record? Well, rather than put forth a true album, they put forth a collection of singles and called it an album. That was the purpose behind the record. In a 2017 interview, Huey Lewis said the following, Sports was very much a record of its time and a collection of singles. It reminds me that it was a very radio-driven market. There was no jam band scene and no internet. So the only avenue to success was a hit record, and we produced it ourselves. We were an unknown band that wanted to do it on our own terms, which we did, but we unabashedly aimed five of those tracks at radio. We didn't know we were going to have five hits, and that's what we had. It holds together less as an album, unlike our subsequent records, which hold together as albums. But as a collection of singles, it did the trick. Now you know why we called it Sports, because it had a lot of hits. Huey's not lying. The five singles released from Sports, Heart and Soul, I Want a New Drug, The Heart of Rock and Roll, If This Is It, and Walking on a Thin Line, all went in the top 20. Four of them went in the top 10. You might even say that I Want a New Drug went in the top 10 twice because Ray Parker Jr. ever so slightly lifted it to make the Ghostbusters theme song for which he was sued and later settled out of court with members of Huey Lewis in the news. Even Bad is Bad, another track on there, was almost another single. They shot a video for it, but ended up holding it back. I guess they didn't need it. After all, Sports is simply one of the biggest records of the 1980s by one of the most commercially successful pop acts of the 1980s. It's this landmark hit that, as I just explained to you, wasn't ever really thought of as a album per se by the people who created it. They weren't out to create an album or an experience like we often think of in our rock snobbery, if you will. But we have got to sell records. We have got to make money so we can keep doing this for a living. That was what sports was about, and it became this colossal hit. I think that's interesting, and I think it's interesting that it worked in such a big way. And it got me thinking about, what are some of the other albums that I'm familiar with that could be like sports, where every song is a banger, every song is a potential hit. Now, not every song is usually going to be released as a single, obviously. That's almost unheard of. But what are some of those albums that you think about 
where every single track could be a big hit, could be one that's loved by the crowd at a live show. I'm sure you have some in your head. I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And here's just a few ideas that I came up with. I suppose I could do a lot worse than starting with one of the biggest albums of all time. But one of the first ones that did come to mind was, of course, Fleetwood Max Broomers. I played a little snippet there of Gold Dust Woman. I chose that song for three reasons. One, it's my favorite track off of Rumors. Two, I hope it makes the podcast a little more interesting than me spewing on and on about music that you can't listen to while I talk about it at the time. I'll call it fair use, but I'm not monetizing the podcast in any way, so please don't sick any lawyers on me. Okay, thanks. Anyway, the third reason I picked it is because I bet you've heard Gold Dust Woman before. I bet you're familiar with that song. But here's the thing, and maybe you've heard it from live albums or what have you. But Gold Dust Woman was not a single. Gold Dust Woman was not released to radio. It was a B-side to singles. It was actually to two different singles, depending on whether you were buying them in the UK or the United States. But that just goes to illustrate how ubiquitous Rumors is. In case you haven't listened to it in a while, here's the track listing. Secondhand News, Dreams, Never Going Back Again, Don't Stop, Go Your Own Way, Songbird, The Chain, You Make Loving Fun, I Don't Want to Know, Old Daddy, and Gold Dust Woman. Hit after hit after hit. There's a reason the thing has sold more than 40 million copies. Rumors seems like a good place to start. I mean, it's widely considered one of the best albums of all time. And unlike, say, Exile on Main Street from the Rolling Stones, which does have great song after great song after great song, there are still those moments on Exile where you know, this is for Rolling Stones fans, this is for a certain kind of rock fan that... These are not necessarily all songs that have the potential to cross over into perhaps a wider audience. Now, I wonder if there's something a little bit more in well-disguised wheelhouse that might qualify. Perhaps you've heard of Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses, their debut record that seems omnipresent even today. Welcome to the Jungle, It's So Easy, Night Train, Out to Get Me, Mr. Brownstone, Paradise City, My Michelle, Think About You, Sweet Child of Mine, You're Crazy, Anything Goes, and Rocket Queen. If you're listening to this show, there's a good chance you know every single one of those songs by heart. I'm sure you can nitpick at some of them. I personally like the acoustic version of Your Crazy Off Lies better than the more raucous version that's on Appetite. Anything Goes is okay. Think About You, I sometimes forget is on the record. I've never really connected with My Michelle. But that's all like nitpicky stuff. I mean, really nitpicky. 
And yeah, some of these songs are obviously far too foul to have ever made it on top 40 popular radio, particularly in the 1980s and probably not now either. But still, Appetite for Destruction is one of those where every single one of these songs is one that you could see being part of the magic when Guns N' Roses ruled the world. A few episodes ago, when I interviewed Chuck Klosterman, we talked a little bit about Appetite for Destruction, but I think it's instructive to read a little bit of what he said in Fargo Rock City when he was talking about Appetite. Chuck wrote, Appetite for Destruction is the singular answer to the question, why did hair metal need to exist? After all the coke and the car wrecks and the screaming and the creaming and the musical masturbation and the pentagrams and the dead hookers, this is what we are left with. The best record of the 1980s, regardless of genre. If asked to list the 10 best rock albums of all time, this is the only pop metal release that might make the list. It's certainly the only Reagan-era material that can compete with the White Album and Rumors and Electric Warrior. This probably doesn't come as a huge surprise, but I think Chuck's right. And also it reminds me, I'm not including the Beatles in this episode in any way because, I mean, come on, they're the Beatles. Now, earlier... I certainly appreciate you, the well-disguised listener, indulging me a little bit in my appreciation of the pop stylings of Huey Lewis in the news. This next one is a little less pop, or maybe not less pop, but certainly more rock. But anyway, I hope you'll indulge me one more time. If you did not immediately spot it, that is, of course, the title track from the album Kick, the 1987 Mega Platinum Mega Smash album by the Australian band NXS. That record is one of my low-key favorite albums of all time. I understand and appreciate now that it's probably not as good as I thought it was when I first heard it when I was in my very early teen years. I can hear that musically it's not as interesting, maybe lyrically too, but I don't care as much about the lyrics, but musically it's just not as interesting as some of the other great Warhorse records that are consistently thought of as among the best of all time. I get that. But Kick is still really good. I mean, it is really freaking good. And again, there are songs like Kick, like the title track, also like Mediate, that weren't released as singles necessarily but are still really well-known and regarded and had shirts made about them and that sort of thing. But the track listing for Kick is Guns in the Sky, New Sensation, Devil Inside, Need You Tonight, Mediate, The Loved One, Wildlife, Never Tear Us Apart, a number one hit here in the United States, Mystify, Kick, Calling All Nations, and Tiny Daggers. Wow, I almost lost my breath going through those, which maybe is a reflection on me needing to hit the treadmill a little more, but I think is more a reflection on it's just big song after big song. This is really one of the best pop albums of all time. Michael Hutchins is so missed. He was that mix of Jim Morrison and Johnny Depp with pop star thrown in. All suicides are tragic, obviously, but the loss of Michael Hutchins is really one of the more understated, underrated, profound losses in music history. As an aside, 
If you go on YouTube, you can find a clip of Terrence Trent D'Arby fronting NXS at a show that I think was in Australia, and it's like peanut butter and chocolate going together. I, NXS had some moments after the death of Michael Hutchins, but you really kind of wish they and Terrence Trent D'Arby had been able to make that more of a full-time thing. It's a really powerful 30 minutes or so. I'll try to remember to put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, so that's Australia's NXS. Speaking of Australia. Well, I talked about rumors. I talked about Appetite for Destruction. Might as well throw in another contender for one of the best-selling albums of all time. Of course, that was just a little snippet of the title track from ACDC's Back in Black, which starts off with Hell's Bells, leads into Shoot to Thrill, What Do You Do for Money, Honey, Giving the Dog a Bone, Let Me Put My Love Into You, Back in Black, You Shook Me All Night Long, Have a Drink on Me, Shake a Leg, and concludes with Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution. Now, three of those songs I never really ever need to hear again. And I bet most of you are the same. I definitely never need to hear You Shook Me All Night Long Again. I just don't ever need to hear it. I've heard it enough. If I never hear it again, I'm good with it. Hell's Bells, Back in Black. I don't, I'm not necessarily going to recoil from those the same way I do You Shook Me All Night Long. But... Again, those songs have been so ubiquitous on rock radio over the course of my life that I'm good. I've heard them. And I think most rock fans, even most ACDC fans, are going to be the same way. And I can also see how some of these songs are a little too racy for pop radio. It's hard to imagine giving the dog a bone being a big hit even in the early 1980s. Certainly less so in our more woke Uh, 21st century, but all these songs are big ones. These are big concert favorites, songs that a lot of people love, and a lot of people talk about songs, not just the big three, but, you know, Have a Drink on Me is one of those songs that I've read multiple musicians talk about contributing to their alcoholism, because when they hear that song, they want to have a drink. And Shoot the Thrill... If I'm going to go see ACDC in concert, which I hope to do sometime in the next year or so, I hope they're going to be able to tour. They've they've been silent on that front, unlike a lot of acts. Shoot to Thrill is one of those songs that has always been killer live and is definitely one of those that I want to hear again, even if I've heard it several times in the past. And then Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution is one of those, I guess you could almost call it a hidden gem, but it is one of the songs that probably has the most pop sensibility of any of the songs on the record. It's not an obvious rock single choice, but kind of like Werewolves of London's kind of off-kilter, Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution would have been an off-kilter choice that could have been a big success too, just in a slightly different way. Now, what can we make of all this? One thing that has occurred to me in preparing this episode, and I just kind of touched on it, is that every single album that I've talked about today was a smash success. In fact, three of them, again, are probably in the top 10 
all-time album sales, Appetite, Back in Black, and Rumors. They are some of the biggest, most successful records ever. And again, I'm just leaving the Beatles out of this because the, the Beatles have so many hits and so many great songs and albums. They just kind of mess everything up. So that's part of what goes into one of these albums, I think. One of the lessons that we can be learned from when we talk about an album where every song could have been a hit. Every song is likable. Every song could have been a smash. Sometimes the proof is just there in the numbers. I mean, sports is a big seller too. Multi-platinum, so is Kick. These are wildly successful records. So maybe sometimes the general public is just right. Maybe if an album is really good, top to bottom, has a lot of great songs on it, the public's going to find out about it and buy them. Now, I see that there's a possible opposite way of looking at this because you're probably thinking of a favorite record or two or three or ten or whatever that you like better than any of the ones I've just listed. And you like it top to bottom or almost top to bottom. And you would say, well, I like this record more than that record. And I'm the same way. I mean, personally, I would rather sit down with Clutch's Blast Tyrant than listen to Back in Black. I think Blast Tyrant's a better record than Back in Black. But I'm a big Clutch fan. I get that there's something about Clutch being a more niche act that would hurt my argument to the general populace that Blast Tyrant is better than Black and Black. So for this argument, I think we do have to lean a little bit on popular demand. Or put another way, perhaps there is some merit to that compilation album title released uh, 60 some years ago. That album, 50 million Elvis fans, can't be wrong. All right, everybody, that is episode 28 of Well to Sky. Sorry if I'm blasting you with my enthusiasm. Maybe I should put more of this oomph into my own voice. But anyway, if you want to share with me some of your choices for records where every song's a hit, you can do that at welldisguise at outlook.com, my website, welldisguise.com, and the place I'm probably on the most is my Twitter account, at well underscore disguised. I would be happy to hear if you want to share any of your own personal choices about albums where every song is a hit or a potential hit. I said last episode I'm not going to ask you to go leave a review at Apple anymore, but obviously if you want to do that, that would be appreciated. I certainly am grateful for anyone who listens to this, including any of the lawyers at the record companies or publishing houses that manage any of the songs that I played little snippets of here in a fair use mindset. I would appreciate you not suing me. Summer is here and a little hairy in terms of vacation and that sort of thing, so I'll try to do an episode again in two weeks, but there may be an announcement coming. I need to take a little bit of time off. We'll just have to see. I don't know. It's just a hobby. You people are getting what you pay for, right? (laughs) Well, uh... Maybe maybe I'm getting paid what I'm worth, too. Regardless, though, it's always cool that anybody cares, anybody listens, anybody wants to check it out. I'm always tickled to see the, the numbers ticking up after the release of each episode. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it, and I'll talk to you soon. A little postscript here. You kick yourself in life a lot of times, right? I think about this stupid show when I'm in the shower, when I'm exercising, or... When I'm supposed to be working at my real job, I'm, I'm sometimes thinking about well-disguised, and 
even though I've thought about all this stuff, sometimes you just have these little brain boo-boos and you miss something that's obvious and that you wanted to talk about. And I'm not going to go back and re-edit it and find a way to put it in there now. But I just want to let you know, I did think of it. I just forgot. It's probably one of the most obvious and best examples that there is, especially if you're a well-disguised listener. Here's the proof. I thought about it. I got you. Sorry, I almost forgot the King Daddy. Bye.